find Philippians. This is our 15th week in this four-chapter book. We begin chapter 3 this week. You'll see that in a few moments. Just for those who may be new, or maybe this is your third or fourth week, or maybe just visiting around the town, uh, we see Philippians really as a missionary update from Paul to his most beloved church in Philippi. And it's a really, it's really a book about joy between these two partners. And so we've, we're trying to understand really what it means to live in the joy of gospel partnership. That's really the thread that runs through Philippians. We've seen one way that people fight for each other's joy is by pursuing selflessness. We spent seven weeks in chapter two seeing that. And now as we approach chapter three, we're going to see that another way we fight for each other's joy is by protecting sound doctrine, or you could say it like this, protecting their stance on sound doctrine. Remember, we pursue selflessness through the gospel, and now we protect sound doctrine or each other's stance with the gospel. It always comes back to the gospel. And you're going to see this clearly in Philippians chapter 3. So your Bibles are in Philippians. You found your way to chapter 3. What you're going to see in this chapter... <clears throat> is that Paul really takes aim at reinforcing their faith with the truth of the gospel so they can live with gospel confidence, gospel joy, gospel assurance, not under like guilt-ridden doubt or judgment. He warns against false teachers and he showcases instead the beauty of Jesus so they can stand strong with joy and wage war against ugly heresies and dangerous wolves. This is really what happens in chapter 3. In fact, if you'll notice in chapter 3, verse 1, he begins by talking about joy. He ends in verse 4 of chapter 4 talking about joy. So he's bookending this whole section of the gospel with this idea of joy, showing us this is the source of joy. It's the gospel. So he's fighting to make sure they don't remove themselves from this sure and solid foundation. Let me show you more specifically in this chapter, especially the first 11 verses. Paul lays out in one of the most pointed and precise ways what it actually means to be a Christian. What genuine salvation truly is. And don't let this surprise you or misdirect you from his aim. His aim is to fight for their joy, and he's doing so by reminding them where true joy comes from. You see, Paul gets to the root of the question, the root of the issue. What sources true, genuine joy? And he knows that they must be drinking from the right well, not from polluted water. They must be drinking from the true source, the true fountain, which is the gospel, not anything false. They must be drinking from that if they're going to experience true and right satisfaction. And so Paul's words here, we're going to look at mainly the first six verses today. We'll look at uh, the remaining ones next week. But these words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they are so convictingly clear about what a Christian actually is and what true salvation actually is, that I think we will see in this room this morning a couple of things revealed and, Lord willing, a couple of things cured. First of all, I think we're going to see the need for true salvation. We're also going to see 
the trap of false salvation. And you may be in one of those this morning. You may be trusting the wrong thing, or maybe you weren't even aware there was a thing called salvation. Your true need will surface. This will be what the Holy Spirit, I'm praying, will do in our midst. So let's jump in this morning. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to kind of tackle the first six or so verses. We'll cover the remaining next week. I would encourage you to think about this week and next week like one larger message, and I'm saving you some time by giving it to you in two sections, okay? Not all at one time. I think we'll have time for a couple of questions after we kind of walk through our text. So if you have a question about the text or things that we're speaking of and explaining, just text them into this number. We'll do our best to take a couple of them today. But I'm praying the Holy Spirit will confidently show us just exactly what is a Christian, what is genuine Christianity, and then from that show us this is where the joy comes from. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Good phrase there, isn't it? And he's moving on in some ways. You see the phrase, in addition? So he's kind of thinking of another subject, and yet he's still staying true to the idea of joy that he began even in chapter 1. He continued in chapter 2, and here he says they are to rejoice in the Lord. I think that's a key phrase. I'll explain more later. He then says he's writing these things again, and it's not a trouble for him, and it's a safeguard for them. So he's, he's moving on in some sense, but he's also uh, staying true to joy. And he's saying this, there must be in your midst gospel polluters, and then what results from that is joy stealers. So he's writing something to them that he's either said to them in person or perhaps in a letter we don't have he's written to them about what helps them and enables them and causes them to rejoice in the Lord. You see that? So Paul is warning them against someone who's trying to steal their joy. And it must be that they're corrupting the gospel because the next thing he does in verse 2 is he tells them to watch out. In fact, he mentions that word three times in chapter 2. Do you see that? So what begins now in verse 2, excuse me, verse 2. What begins now in verse 2 is the clearest, most blatant explanation of what a Christian is and why that's the source of real joy. This is how we rejoice in the Lord. Verse 2, he tells us what the gospel is not. By warning us to watch out for the dogs, sorry, Georgia fans, <laughs> to watch out for the evil workers and to watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, this is a verse in which he's labeling heretics and false teachers, wolves, with three descriptors. He calls them dogs. Very interesting. Well, the Paul here is, this is a loaded verse. It's just packed with insight. I'll not be able to unpack all of it, but I'll do the best I can here. When he calls these Jewish infiltrators dogs, he's flipping the tables here a bit. You see, in that culture, if you weren't in God's family, you were a Gentile far from God, at least ethnically, let's say. These Jewish leaders would say you were a dog. There's a story in the New Testament when someone who's begging Jesus for mercy and conversing with him, I think she comments to the Lord, even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the table, meaning those who aren't Jews still get the 
the effects of what's happening among the Jews, even though we're not really in the group. Does that make sense? So, and dogs weren't like they are today. They weren't like man's best friend in Jerusalem. They were just roaming the city, scavenging for food. Dogs were not considered a friendly pet. And so here he flips the table and he says, you think that you're in because your ethnicity is Jewish, but you're actually the dogs. You're the ones who are in because you're trusting what you do and your work. You're polluting and corrupting the gospel. You're actually the dogs. You're the ones who aren't in. Now, Paul here does not mince his words. So I'll try to keep the tone of the text as well. And we'll come pretty strong at these situations. He then calls them evil workers, which again, is a, is a really interesting way to describe those who do good things to try to earn a favor with God. Paul says there's actually nothing good about what you're doing. You're actually involved in evil works. Why? Because you're polluting, corrupting, distorting the gospel. You are, in essence, attacking God. You're subverting and sabotaging his clear and finished work. So Paul lays it out pretty clearly. You're working evil. And then he calls them mutilators of the flesh. He's referencing here circumcision, which in this culture, in this situation, was the main work these high and mighty Jewish leaders felt that the Gentiles had to do to be saved. But Paul here does not actually use the word for circumcision. It's his way of saying, I'm not even going to honor these false teachers, these heretics. I'm not going to give them the joy of thinking that what they're doing actually is circumcision. I won't even use the word that God used in the Old Testament to describe the physical mark of his covenant people. I wouldn't even give you that pleasure. All you are is flesh mutilators. I mean, <laughs> this is a strong verse, church. And it really describes those who find their identity in accomplishment, in self-effort. Can we just use the word trying? And Paul here is saying the gospel, genuine, joyful salvation is not at all about trying. It's not something you do. It's not dependent upon your effort. It's not a matter of you obeying a certain amount of laws to consider yourself good. It is not about your effort. And when you think it is, and when I think it is, and when others say to us, it's about what you do, it's about your accomplishments, it's about your effort. Paul here would say, no, that's the sign that you're actually not in. You're corrupting the gospel. You're working evil even when you think you're doing good. This is stark, isn't it? So it's not about trying. Let me just tell you, in essence, what this really addresses. It's the most commonly held belief across the globe today. It's the belief of what I call the good enough theory of how people get to heaven. What makes a person right with God? What gives someone genuine salvation and then genuine joy? Like, how do we rejoice in the Lord if, according to this verse, we're always rejoicing in ourselves and what we do, right? That's why Paul says rejoice in the Lord. It's not about your work. It's about Christ's work. And so this theory of being good enough, accomplishing things, attaching works to ourselves, it's been around since the first century and before. Still around today. It's the most widely 
held view of how people, and I'll use this phrase, it's kind of the common vernacular, get to heaven. You may say things like are made right with God or reconciled to God, how we deal with our sin. All those are, are synonymous phrases for, for the average person wondering, how do I make sure at the end of my life I go up and not down? Now, they can say all day long they don't believe in hell, but you go with them to a funeral, they're going to say, well, he's in a better place. And I often want to say, well, I thought it didn't matter. I thought you didn't believe in better or worse places, right? But I think God has put eternity in our hearts. We know that there's a creator. We intuitively, with our conscience, know we are answerable. So we, we wonder, like, What's it going to take to be right with my creator? And the vast majority of the world, and, and listen, this is true for our city. The vast majority of the front doors in our city, you knock on them and just have a conversation about, how do you get to heaven? The vast majority will say, I'm hoping to, I'm working hard at it. I hope I'm good enough. And you notice that when they express the good enough theory, no one ever says, I'm in, I know I'm good enough. But they never say they're not across the line. They're I find that most people say, I'm just barely on this side of good because they don't want to appear to be proud. That might put them in the bad side, right? But they don't want to say to you, I don't think I'm in. So they kind of say, yeah, I'm, I'm really hoping. I'm working. I'm doing some good things. You kind of get the sense they're just on this side of the good line. It's, it's an interesting philosophy. Uh, every, every single religion in the world subscribes to this. You have to do something. And they all have their different methods. But you have to do something to earn what God actually gives through Christ as a gift. Yes. Yes. Only biblical Christianity would say there are no works that you can do to approach God. Those are evil, actually. And if you think you can do them and gain God's favor, you're actually not in. That's a sign you're a dog, so to speak, in this text. No matter what your work is, you can either take an Old Testament work and try to make it New Testament-like. There are no works you can do to work your way to God. That's what biblical Christianity says. Every other system of belief says the opposite. You got to do something to gain God's attention. Many of them say you add to what Christ did. You kind of finish up. Um, you put your piece into the pie, so to speak. Here's the problem. If, if you were to be with one of your friends who holds the good enough theory and have an honest, logical talk, I think in a matter of 10 minutes, you could dismantle their argument in a friendly way and help them see the beauty and the truth of the gospel. Here's three things you can say to them. First of all, so uh, what is good and what is good enough? Because it changes with time. Like 100 years ago, what they said was good today is not considered good. And what many people consider good today, I can tell you for sure, a hundred years ago, was not considered good. You're thinking of several examples in your mind right now, I'm sure. And good changes based upon location, not only time. Like, for instance, certain parts of Africa, just in the recent year, have actually criminalized and outlawed homosexuality. But in America, we scolded those countries in Africa. We told them they were out of touch. They're not up to date. So, Good seems to change based on time, and it seems to change based on location. And I have the biggest question of all is like, well, who sets the standard for good? Is it you? Is it me? Is it relative? Does everyone get to set their own standard? Like, I'm sure in Germany, Hitler thought he was setting the standard for good, and a lot of people agreed with him. Yes. But he wasn't. 
So who sets the standard? If you can just address those three questions with someone who buys into the like, man, I'm hoping I make it. I'm working hard at it. I think I'm barely over right now. They're unanswerable questions, what I'm saying. It is a fallacy to think that any type of good enough theory actually holds water because it changes over time by location. And we don't know who the man behind the curtain is who's setting the standard for good. But when you look at biblical Christianity, it answers every single one of those because God has set a standard for all of time. Here's the standard, perfection. Which is why all are disqualified from the get-go. Except for one, the God-man who took our place, lived the perfect sinless life, satisfied every demand that God asked for, died and rose again, and now one man satisfies God's standard of perfection. It's Jesus. So across all of time, in every location, from the one who sets the standard, Jesus Christ fully satisfies God. So when he asks you to believe in the name of Christ, what God's saying is, Put your faith in Jesus, not in your own efforts, not your flesh. That's the way to be reconciled to God. That's the way to get to heaven. Because you see, heaven's not accessed through fairness. Heaven's accessed through forgiveness. That's why heaven really isn't made for good people. I know we we think that when we talk to our people in our city and around the world, like, well, I'm I'm working to be good. I'm going to get there, I think. And we had this idea that heaven's for good people. No, actually, heaven's for bad people, which is all of us who've been saved because they've repented and trusted Jesus and are now saved people. But we have this false assumption that it's all about fairness. And if you're good enough, you might get there. This is exactly what was infiltrating the Philippian church. And Paul is saying, you know what? That kind of mentality... That kind of belief that says, you just do the right works and enough of them, you'll get there. Man, there's no joy in that. Could somebody say amen? Here's why. You never know when you're there. It's like a, um, a formula for spiritual insomnia. You'll lay awake in your soul like, am I good enough yet? Have I crossed the line? Have I done enough? It'll drive you crazy. Paul here says, those kinds of people who lay that on you. They're dogs, evil workers, and just flesh mutilators. They're actually not in. They don't know Jesus. They don't believe the true gospel. And so there is no true joy from them. But here's what the true gospel is. Verse three, for we are the circumcision. Now he uses the word, but he's using it in the New Testament sense. It's the work of the spirit setting us apart internally. I'd remind you, he's probably already written Galatians by this point. Galatians is one of the first books of the New Testament written. And in there, he clearly describes circumcision as not the external cutting of the flesh anymore. It's simply the work of the spirit in setting God's people apart. Then he describes them as the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. Notice how the word worship contradicts with work. Isn't that good? 
So we're giving God worth and ascribing to Him praise for all that He's done. We're not trying to work our way to Him. This happens by the Spirit of God, and we boast in Christ Jesus. So when we boast, we're not boasting in ourselves. We're not saying, look what I did. Here's my list of accomplishments. We're boasting in Jesus Christ. And then he echoes again what he said earlier, do not put confidence in the flesh. I love the way verse 2 ends with flesh and the way verse 3 ends with flesh. One saying, if you think working in the flesh gets you to heaven, you're obviously not in, but you know you're in when you don't put confidence in the flesh. So nothing to God's throne I bring, only to the cross I cling. This is the heartbeat of Paul here. I love the way in this verse, you see a real Trinitarian reference. Do you look this? Do you see this? Look closely with me. There's the Spirit of God mentioned. And because it's the Spirit of God, there's God the Father mentioned. And then Christ Jesus is mentioned. I love the fact that in somewhat of a subtle way, we see that salvation is solely and wholly a work of our Trinitarian God. The Father planned it. From eternity past, the Son purchased it on the cross. And now, the Spirit applies it through conviction and regeneration and justification to all who believe. Salvation is the work of God, not the work of man. It is accomplished and accessed by faith, not by our flesh. That is the true gospel. And if you want joy, real joy, it comes through Jesus. Amen? It's not because of what you do or I do. Legalism will never lead to a joyful posture. But confidence instead is found when we rejoice in the Lord. Beginning in verse 4, he really unpacks the last word of verse 2 and the last word of verse 3, the word flesh. I think he really just kind of expands more on what the flesh is. And he's doing this in this way. He says, by the way, if you think that you've got some things to boast about, let me lay out my resume for you. And by the way, he's writing to a primarily Gentile congregation. So he's saying to them, if I don't stand a chance as a Jew who's a Pharisee, look at the things he mentions, born in the right tribe, circumcised. Uh, he's a Hebrew. He uh, kept the law. He was a high standing Hebrew, a Pharisee. He did lots of good things. He, he, he helped, you know, their cause and hurt the church. In fact, he uses the word blameless to close out verse six. He's saying, if I'm not getting in by what I do, what chance do you stand, Philippian Gentiles? And Paul is burying any possibility that through something you do, through something I do, in this case, something that they do, could ever have any possibility of causing God to grant us favor or salvation. Which is why in verse 7, and I'll get here next week more, but I just want to mention this. All those things that he mentions in verses 4 to 6, he says they are a loss. They're not even neutral, church. They're a loss. Here's why. Because they're keeping, they were keeping him from God. And so to have any type of grasp on them to try to hold them to say, well, in case I come up short, I've got this bag of tricks back here. No, they're not neutral. They're not in reserves. They're a loss. And I'll say a lot more next week. And in fact, come back because it will be even more pointed and blatant next week as we get to the end of verse 11. Paul here is so dramatically 
theologically sound by saying anything good you've done is of no avail. It's not neutral. It's not a win. It is a loss because it keeps you from Jesus if you think that's how you're saved. That's not the true gospel. This reminds me of Matthew 7. Remember Matthew 7? The end of the Sermon on the Mount, he's addressing disciples and he says that there will be many on the day of judgment who will say to him, Lord, did we not do lots of good things in your name? And what they list are actually many good works. We drove out demons, we healed people. Like you would say, those are good things. But the Lord will respond to them, I never knew you. Why? It's not because what they did was bad. It's why they did it. They did those works because they thought that's how they could access God. We'll do these and trust these works. That's actually evil. And when you trust works of the flesh, it's a sign you're not trusting Jesus. He doesn't know you. And this is why childlike faith is so beautiful to watch. Even this morning as I was driving in, just praying through some of these thoughts, asking God to just keep massaging my heart, I was thinking about the, the many children I've seen in this church who've become a Christian. You know why God saves kids? Because at seven and six or eight and 10, when they hear the truth of the gospel, they're not skeptical and doubt it. They simply say, I believe that 100%. I'm all in. It's all about Jesus. And childlike faith is what Jesus is looking for. But all of us have adult-like faith. We analyze ourselves right into hell. That shouldn't be funny, church. No offense, but the older we get, the more baggage we collect. And we're sure that this can't really be a gift. It can't be true. Someone has said this, and they found this research, and they've rejected that, and they're trying to question this. But children, when they hear the truth of the gospel, and the Holy Spirit convicts their heart and gives them the faith to believe, and they just say, I believe that 100%. You know what God does to that six-year-old, that eight-year-old, that 11-year-old? He just saves them. Yes. And I'm praying that this morning there'll be a lot of childlike faith in this room and that many of you will abandon trusting your flesh because that is not the gospel and it's the reason you're not living with joy because you're drinking from a polluted well. You're strapping on other people's lists. You're trying to find your way through life and work your way to God and it never will work. That's Philippians 3, 1 to 6. It's just the beginning of the first 11 verses, but it is the clearest and one of the most blatant explanations of what a Christian actually is. In essence, it's not trying, but trusting. Very simple. It's not putting confidence in our flesh, but putting faith in Christ 100%. That's the flow of the text. Let's see if you have any questions and then I'll land the plane. Any questions that all come in? We have one question. Here we go. Three, two, one. Let's take a shot at this. Is the choice to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior a work? No, it is a response. It's a great question. I'm so glad someone asked it. I will admit to you that cognitively, on a human level, these are hard distinctions to make, all right? But I want to take you back to something. It's a response because you didn't begin the work. Remember, 
we're all like sheep going astray. Isaiah said, Paul said it. We're sinners by nature and choice. None of us are seeking after God. And so when God moves upon you in conviction, it's his work and you, by the Holy Spirit's power, respond to it. Is it something you do and are you active? Yes. But you did not cause it. It is not a work of your hands. It is a response given to you by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is why we say salvation is holy and solely a work of God. And on that hill, I'll die. Let me see if I can kind of land this plane with a simple sentence that I think will summarize these first six verses. And again, I got to just kind of tease you a bit. You don't want to miss next week. It will get, it will just get tense and hot in this room next week, probably. It, this, this chapter through verse 11 just gets fantastic as he continues to lay out for us what brings real joy. And it's the true, real gospel, not a counterfeit version or a polluted one. But as you think about the first six, here's what we've seen. And I hope this is exposing and revealing and hopefully curing either the need for true salvation in the room or the trap of false salvation that you're sensing you may be uh, held by. But in the simplest of words, here's what Paul is saying. Genuine, joyful Christianity is not trying myself, but trusting Jesus. That's the take-home truth. I'll show it to you. Write it down. Take a picture of it. It's very simple. The, the singular simple sentence is this. Genuine, joyful Christianity is not trying myself, but trusting Jesus. You knew we would get there. This is what the whole text was about. We said it a hundred times already. But let's clearly, succinctly, and just as pointedly as Paul did, make sure we proclaim the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not in any way about trying to earn anything accomplish something on your own, or bring your works to the table. It is 100% exclusively about trusting Jesus, what he did on the cross for you. Now, do not let that zoom by you. Don't let that gospel airplane fly by the airport of your mind as if I've heard that for 20 years. I know that because Paul, I'd remind you of verse one, is saying this is what he must remind them of and there's no problem for him and it's a safeguard for them to hear the gospel again. People had, in, had infiltrated the church at Philippi, the dogs, the evil workers, the mutilators of the flesh. There were those in that church saying it's by what you do that God gives his approval and salvation. And Paul says, okay, I'm 10 years removed from planting this church, but I'll just write you again. And it's no problem for me to remind you it's only and always about Jesus 100%. So do not let this truth fly by you like, um, I've seen that plane before. And let this thing kind of helicopter over you for a bit. Because this is where the joy comes from. Trusting Jesus.
You see, if you're putting confidence in anything at all other than Jesus alone, if you're drinking from a polluted well or trusting a corrupted gospel, all of that is in vain when it comes to the eternal destination of your soul and body. If you're trying to help God by adding to what Jesus did, that's heretical. It's ludicrous. So no wonder you're less than confident. No wonder you're less than joyful. You're not trusting, you're still trying. In the plainest of terms, you're not actually a Christian. You're not truly saved. This is the tension of the passage. That we all love to say amen, but we still love to cling to our works. But let me be ultra Windex clear with you, my loves, dearly. There is not a single work you can do to gain God's attention. Jesus has done everything and the only thing by which you'll ever gain his favor. Quit trying and just start trusting. Now, the good news is if you're here and you're realizing, wow, that's me. I've, I've been trapped for X amount of years. I, I've been trying, holding on to a reserved collection of good works. Or maybe you're like, I never heard this, Todd, but you're right. The, the fallacy of being good enough is so clear and it's multiple fallacies. Like, who would ever believe that? Todd, this is logical. It's theological. I want to believe. Then here's the good news. Though you may have found this morning that you're just trying and that you are not saved, here's the good news. You're still breathing. Which means with the breath you have, you can repent of trying and you can commit to trusting. You can put faith in Christ alone for forgiveness and be done with fairness. You can accept the gift of eternal life that comes from God through Jesus and you can quit thinking your works will ever amount to anything. You can, with 100% assurance, trust Christ and receive the joy of your salvation. You see, that's why I'm confidently joyful and over the moon, deep down satisfied and assured in my salvation. Not because of what I've done. I've done nothing. I've sinned greatly. I've transgressed God's laws. I've broken his commandments. But I've trusted Jesus as the only way to be saved. And Jesus has taken care of every one of my sins on the cross. I trust that. And so I'm deep down joyful. In fact, hear this well, the greatest and deepest joy I have comes from knowing that Jesus has lifted the crushing and damning weight of my sin off my shoulders. That's right, the deepest joy. Above the joy I received from Julie, our ever-expanding family, it's a distant second to the joy of knowing I won't answer for my sin. 
God has forgiven me in Jesus. Because you see, that's the greatest weight I've ever felt. What do I do about this sin? How do I bridge this eternal chasm? I'm in this forever dilemma. How do I get back to God? Enter Jesus center stage. That's why I'm quick to tears and often filled with cross-centered emotion. When I think about the day God saved me, it always moves me very deeply because I didn't deserve any of it. I wasn't looking for God. I wasn't expecting it, but God in his mercy, he was rich in love and grace. He reached down to a redheaded boy who was about 13 or 14 and said, believe me, trust me. And it was so irresistible. He drugged me to the cross and I said, I'm in. That's why I moved Monday at staff meeting. We had a whole half day session just being together. And part of that was worship and prayer. And there was a segment of our prayer time in which we just all called out the moment, the season, the day, the month that God saved us. Some were saying April 78. Others were saying freshman year of college. Some said as a child in my home. And in no time at all, you begin to hear the sniffles. You could hear the quivering voices because people were thinking about the moment that they responded to God's sole work of saving them in spite of them. See, that's why I want to be quick to remind you of and surround you with protective gospel truth because it's no different today. Selfish, sinister wolves want to sabotage and sink your faith by strapping their list to your back. Refuse them. Ignore them. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who fulfilled every requirement and invites you into his easy yoke and light burden. That's Jesus. And that's why the song of Calvary, the chorus of the redeemed will forever be on my lips. That's the melody I want to sing every single day. I want to sing the words that that blind lady wrote about 150 years ago, don't you? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Amen, church. Can we put our hands together and give the Lord praise for his merciful, mighty, and marvelous salvation, the source of our highest, deepest, and greatest joy.